Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. How do you write when you don't feel like it? That's a really good question. I get that all the time. My prescription for that is to write anyway. What are you, some kind of privileged first world brat? I don't feel like doing the work. Mm. Okay, well then don't do the work. Don't succeed, yeah. it's up to you. But if you wanna succeed, you gotta sit down, you gotta do the work. And here's the thing, what you think is that if you sit down and write jokes when you don't feel like it, they're not gonna be funny. It's not how it works. You just think they're not funny. They just feel unfunny to you because you don't feel funny. Hot breath. What's goody, Hot breath verse? It's Hot Breath time. This is the show where you learn comedy from the pros, and today's episode is our finale of our author series. As a comedian myself of over 12 years, hi, I'm Joel Byers, by the way, if this is your first time tuning in. We have over 400 interviews about the craft of comedy. In the past few weeks, we've been posting interviews with some of the best comedy writers in the game, from Greg Dean to Judy Carter to John Vorhaus and so many more. And today's finale episode is going to be a banger. I've got Hot Breath Pro member Bo Johnson joining me on this one. He actually helped bring this whole author series together. And you are helping spread the word by listening and sharing this information forward. All I ask is if you find even one tip in today's episode helpful, reach out to Scott Dickers and let him know, hey, I heard you on Hot Breath and it was amazing. And if you want to go a step further, share this with an aspiring comedian or a comedian that you know when you're out on the open mic grind and stuff. Let other comics know that Hot Breath is here to help as we are all in this together, my friends. And now there is only one thing left to do, and that is inhale a hot breath with Scott Dickers. Scott, hey. welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Hey, everybody. I am great. Thanks for having me. So excited to hear you bring up the Onion Radio News because for a long time in the early years, you know, we had our publication, our print publication, which, Joel, maybe you didn't know about until just the second, uh, that it was a newspaper before it was a website. And the radio show was had more listeners than the, the print uh, edition had readers. And I was a you know, I was a big fan of trying to get us in every possible medium, reach as many people as possible in as many different ways as possible. And we always had to rethink what it was every time we went into a new space. So when we went into radio, it wasn't just reading the newspaper. It was like, no, we have to find a, a radio announcer who sounds like a really square AM radio newsman <laughs> who's going to read and we're going to rescript them. So they're short, choppy sentences like radio. And we had just had so much fun making those. And actually, you can they're really hard to find now. But if you check out the audiobook of The Onion's second book, which was called The Onion's Finest News Reporting, it's like a collection. That audiobook is made up of some of the best little snippets of The Onion radio news. So anybody interested, check that out. Super funny. P.S. Mueller did the voice for Doyle Redland, our news anchor. And P.S. Mueller is a cartoonist of some renown. 
but he used to work in AM radio reading the news to old people. So he he, he, un- <laughs> he had a totally solid, you know, sense of what was funny and what was like, you know, hip funny, not just like square funny, but he sounded like a totally square. I talk about him like he's in past tense. He's still with us. Um, but uh, he just had that perfect balance and love him to death. Love that show. So I'll just keep talking. You guys don't have to say anything for the rest of the hour. If you want to do it that way. <laughs> Reminisce about more of uh, the Onions products over the years. I think that's important, though, is like seeing how you're able to diversify comedy. Like a lot of people only look at it as like one medium, whether it's writing or you're doing stand up or whatever. But like there's so many different ways you can utilize the skill of comedy. Yeah. And the people who really zeroed in on stand up, you know, really got hit hard in the pandemic Mm -hmm. and everybody who diversified was doing fine. They had their videos, their articles, their books, you know, whatever else they were doing, their script writing. So you got to do that. And when I was young, like in my twenties, the onion was starting out. I was like, I can't even adequately communicate just how hungry I was. Like I was just ambition personified. So I, I, I didn't do anything but comedy. And I would sleep and I would get up and I would do comedy and I would go to sleep, I would get up and I would do comedy. So, you know, putting together the onion newspaper every week was a lot of work, but it was always trying something else. Always like, let's do a radio show. Let's do a TV pilot. Let's do a book, you know, uh, and the onion was distributed free on the street. So we were even in the street art medium, you know, where it's like, that's a great medium that more comedians should take advantage of, like going out and doing live pranks or whatever. A uh, great way to build an audience, great way to go viral with a video is to do stuff like that. And a lot of people discovered The Onion that way by just seeing it on the street, you know, on the newsstand. Mm. And those are the people who who got the best surprise because that's the best thing about the street art medium is that people aren't expecting comedy. They're, they're just living their life. They're going through their their day and they get this crazy what is this newspaper that's fake fake stories why i've never seen anything like that it was such a weird thing it was such an unusual thing you know so and that was a, another problem so when did you actually start writing comedy i mean professionally in my 20s but i was writing it on my whole life like i have a joke book that i wrote from you know scrap paper that my dad brought home from the office that I stapled together and I was probably four and it was like a book of jokes so long time long time wow that's um so as you and throughout your career um our, our big first question what are some of the most common mistakes you find with newer or even veteran um comedy writers uh mistakes with veterans is harder because they're obviously doing okay if they're veterans. But I guess the one I see is the one we just talked about where they're not diversified and they're kind of zeroed in on one thing and they're not capitalizing on the brand awareness that they have or the, the core fan base that they have. You know, they're, they're locked into, you know, okay, I tour clubs and that's what I do. And why aren't they doing a book? Why aren't they writing a book and putting their their mug on the cover. Like that's just the best thing you can do to grow your audience. Um, and there's so many other things to do. People don't have an active YouTube channel. They're not posting their comedy on YouTube. That's crazy. You know, they gotta be doing that. In terms of the novices, uh, 
one of the big mistakes I see is they're they're using cliches in their work. Like they're just borrowing phrases or types of humor that are cliches at this point that we've all seen. And a lot of that is structural. It's very subtle. It's like, you know, going up on stage and saying, you know, I know what you're thinking, you know, Woody Harrelson uh, meets whatever. And like, that's a cliche. Don't start your act like that. We've seen that before. Do something different. And another big mistake I see novices do is failing to understand the value of thinking outside the box. Because the kind of comedy that breaks through is the kind of comedy that feels completely new. Mm. Oh my God, I've never seen that before. And those are the people who break out. Nobody ever breaks out by being like everybody else. It just doesn't happen. And so many comics get in this rut of, well, this is how you do stand-up comedy. This is how everybody's doing it. So this is how I have to do it. No, it's not. No, you don't. You do it however the fuck you want. Like it's a totally free reign uh, space that, that five minutes, whatever you have, like go nuts, like be crazy, be weird, be different. That's what's going to raise eyebrows. That's, you know, the, the one element that I believe all humor requires is surprise. Mm. And so if you're mimic, if you're just copying what other people are doing, you're failing at the very bare minimum requirement of comedy. You gotta have, you gotta have a surprising act. And with, and with what, um, what you just said about the cliches, I, I, I remember that was like one of the biggest early things in the, in your first book is stay as far away from the cliches as possible and maybe even create, like how would one even start to begin to create a clip, their own, their newest cliche that one day someone would be like, Hey, you just, you just hacked off this person. Like creating a cliche that other people borrow and use. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, really the only way to do that is to write a lot and that's a big thing that i always talk about is that quantity is the key to quality because the Mm. best comedy writers write a ton of crap and then they sit through that to get to the good stuff and they put the good stuff out and you know you never know you you can't predict when something's going to catch on or whatever but that's the only way you got to be producing a lot so that you increase your batting average, increase your chances of getting out there. But yeah, it's still something I see. It's like people will take my classes or whatever and they'll, they'll write some jokes and I'm seeing lines in there that are like, why are you using that phrase that we've all seen a hundred times? Like, you know, uh, using the um, thank you for coming to my TED talk line or, you know, anything like that. Like, God, for God's sake, do it in your personal life, it's fine. But don't ever do that in professional work. It's just immediately tars you as a, a rank amateur. Part of what we do every day here is a daily writing club where we get yeah. a new word and write a new joke in 10 minutes. So what what uh what would be your process? Maybe we can kind of adapt in terms of, okay, we're getting a word. Now we have to create something funny in 10 minutes. Like how how would you go about like walking through that? I would write as many jokes in 10 minutes as I possibly could. And as I'm doing that, I'm going to hit on one that I feel like has some potential. And so when I get to that one, I'm going to work a little bit longer on just that one to like make sure it's tight and 
amplify it as much as possible, heighten the contrast. And then if I still have time, I'll write some more and hopefully do that again with another one. Because um, I'm a firm believer in the Theodore Sturgeon principle that 90% of everything is crap. So mm -hmm. if I'm going to write a joke in 10 minutes, if I write one joke, there's a 90% chance that joke will suck. <laughs> so I need to write 10 to have a chance of having a good one. Oh, wow. And, and I noticed, I remember one of the things in the book was, you know, don't just quickly throw away a joke. Don't throw it away, kind of put it away and maybe you can come back to it later and then you'll figure it out, you know? So it's not, everything is trash. So at what point could you actually say, could a comic say, okay, if I've put it away for a couple months, I've come back, I still can't figure it out. Do they just keep putting it back? Do they, you know, at what point should they go, okay, maybe enough is enough. You know, that's going to be an individual uh, preference. I feel like for me, like I have a big file of concepts that I think are amusing. I never throw them away. Like if I'm ever looking for something, I'll just thumb through that and I'll see stuff in there that I've seen in there for years that I haven't done anything with that I still somehow feel like, ah, you know, maybe there's something to that. Hold on to that for a little while. And then sometimes I get into other moods where I just, I, I prune it and I go through and I just erase all this stuff. But you know what? I've seen that over and over. I'm never going to use it. It's gone. Um, so, cause you never know where a good one's going to come from. So I try to like improve my odds as much as possible. Um, Joel, do you have a question? Oh, I was going to read Bob's. I didn't know if you saw his. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I'm in the I, chat, I did though, take if you some want questions earlier. Sorry. I did no, take oh, some, go ahead. I did I take some I questions earlier. I don't see the earlier. chat. Have you guys, I don't see the chat. Have you guys got this? <laughs> yeah, it's, in, uh, Bob, it's on our Facebook group. So yeah. we have oh, okay. a listener who's uh, who's literally geeking out right now. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, he's he's totally marking out right now, so he's he's going to have a fit. Um, and his his question is writing for the onion is a dream job. Uh, my question, what tips do you have for creating a successful submission packet? Ooh. I, I can answer that, but first I have to ask, why would you want to submit to the onion? So when I was starting out, the biggest humor publication in the world was Spy magazine. It was really funny. The writing was amazing. It's the funniest publication America had yet produced. And I never would have dreamed of submitting to them. And I never did. I, I thought, oh my God, that's so funny. I should start a humor publication too. And so to that person, I would say, why are you submitting to The Onion? Why not start your own publication so you can be hiring writers in 20 years? Because what you're going to do if you get a job at The Onion is you're going to work for a really corporate entity that's going to pay you as little as they can get away with because they're owned by some sort of um, capital investment group at this point. <laughs> and, sorry. And they're going to work you to death. And it's going to be a nice feather in your cap and it might lead to other opportunities. But why work hard to make somebody else money? Like, why not work to build a business for yourself? Uh, okay, so that's my first part of the answer. Second part of the answer is, here's how you do a successful submission to the end. <laughs> I love it. You write a lot of jokes because everybody thinks they can do the onion voice because we've all seen it. We've all read it. It's 
really funny AP parody, but it's actually really hard to pull off. And so most submissions I see aren't straight enough. They're too wacky. They break the voice too much. So be strict, be on voice. And the straighter you can be, the better. You want the humor to come from how straight it is. You don't want the humor to come from the jokes. So write a bunch of jokes, write a ton of jokes, make sure you vet them, ask you know, a feedback group that you have, any kind of other group of comedy writers to review your jokes, give you feedback and write at least you know, 100 or 200 headline jokes before you come up with the 10 or 15 that you're gonna submit to The Onion. And then you wanna take two or three of those 10 or 15 and you wanna write a little short one paragraph news and brief style piece based on that. And that's kind of the place where most of the submissions fail. Like the headlines sometimes are pretty funny, but then in the story, it's like, no, nah, they don't have the voice. They're just not nailing it. Mm. And you have to be able to nail the voice. It's like working for any comedian or any comedy enterprise. You have to be able to do their voice. And at The Onion, it's, it's especially strict because The Onion is not a person. And that voice is kind of everything. So, you know, when you don't have a, a human being to deliver the material, you just have this, you know, news empire character. So study the Onion's short news pieces, see what works about them, see, see what you think makes them funny, and do your best to, to make them as straight as possible. How do you hone in on your voice? You mean if you're trying to match someone else's voice or on your own voice? Well, it's like we're already talking in the chat of, yeah, I mean, just creating a hot breath onion. But like you said, you've got to have a specific voice. And if it's not a person and if there's multiple people writing, it's like, what was the process for really developing the onion's voice? I yeah. see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, it was very, a very conscious effort to hide all of the people involved. So the names of all the staff writers are never on the stories. They're kind of buried in the in the staff listing. And the reason for that was because I had seen too many publications, Spy Magazine being one of them, in the past that kind of made many celebrities out of the writers of the publication. Mm-hmm. The National Lampoon did that, Mad Magazine did that, and Spy did that. And what would happen is those people would inevitably leave and go write for Hollywood or do whatever. And fans would be like, ah, it's not funny anymore because so-and-so left. And the brand would tank. Spy is the worst case of all. Some idiot, some blithering idiot millionaire bought Spy Magazine for like $2 million, failed to sign Graydon Carter and Kurt Anderson, the two geniuses who founded it, to any kind of non-compete clause or any kind of employment agreement. And they left. They took their money and they left. And immediately, like overnight, the publication like sucked. (laughs) (laughs) Went out of business in like three months. So... I didn't want the onion to make that mistake. So I wanted the onion to be the voice and the voice of the news, the AP news parody came because of, you know, function following form. We had to print the onion on newsprint because it was the only paper we could afford when we first started out. We wanted it to be a slick, glossy magazine, full color and everything, but couldn't afford it. So we were on black and white, broadsheet newspaper. And I was embarrassed by that. I thought that was just ridiculous. What kind of humor publication prints on newsprint? It was so cheap. But we figured, well, I guess we're going to be a parody newspaper then. 
And so that's what works in that format because fu function should always follow form because the audience is dumb. Like you have to realize that your audience is totally not paying attention. They don't care and they're not giving you two brain cells. So you got to make things real easy for them. You got to spoon feed them. So if you have a newspaper and even with the onion, like I think that was pretty simple. It's a newspaper, but the stories are fake. Get it? It's mm -hmm. funny. <laughs> it took eight years for people to stop asking me, what the heck? What the hell is that? It's weird. Never seen anything like that before. They didn't get it. They just didn't get it. So, but that's going to happen whenever you try to do something new in comedy, people are going to be confused and that's okay. You kind of have to go through that phase and stick to your guns. If you really think you have something, you know, if you're getting a few like influencers and tastemakers and other people who are recognizing, Oh, I see what you're doing. That's really cool. That's really new. And that's really interesting. And so same thing with a stand-up comic, you got to look at, well, what paper are you printed on? Are you old? Are you fat? Are you white? Are you black? Uh, are you a woman? You know, do you have glasses? What's your hair look like? What do people think of when they see you? Um, that's your persona, you know, because you gotta, you gotta flow through what you are. Charlton Heston said, um, an actor is limited by his equipment. So that's your equipment. That's, that's your medium. You've gotta, you've gotta work with that. And the best comedians have total alignment between their comic persona and what they look like. Patton Oswalt looks like a fucking nerd. His persona is the nerd, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Bill Burr looks like a psycho. His, his comic persona is he's a fucking psycho. Um, psycho who makes sense. It's a great hybrid archetype. But uh, I know people struggle with that. They have a really hard time figuring out what their persona is because it's very hard for us to step outside ourselves and look at ourselves objectively. That's why you got to ask people who you don't know, like, what do you think of when you look at me? Like, what, what kind of a person do you think I am? What would you expect me to do or say? And use that, you know, especially if you get the same answer from three out of five people, then you know you got something. So that's an actually interesting take on the persona is just ask strangers. Got to ask strangers. Your friends are never, they're not going to help. They, they don't. They, they can't separate the, the personality of you from the physical you that, that makes the first impression. Wow. So just be at the grocery store and then at checkout, just ask the clerk, what do yeah. you think of when you see me? I would ask someone on the street. I would ask a homeless person because they're looking for somebody to talk to anyway. And they're going <laughs> to be really honest with you. They got nothing to lose. You know? Yeah. I love homeless people. They're the best. Like I always used to cast them in videos and stuff. They're just golden. They're golden. Oh wow, that is that is great. Um, all right, so so what the the with society like it is cancel culture, ultra PC people easily offended. Um, should should the approach to satire even be changed? Does it just keep going? Because so many people are so easily offended these days. So how is the approach to satire in two thousand twenty one? I'm trying to make sense of all this because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing the cancel culture. I feel like it's a false narrative that is being pushed by the establishment media to distract us from the fact that corporations have taken over our country and our government and they're not giving us minimum wage and they're not giving us healthcare, even though we can totally afford it. And 50% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency. 
uh, but the media is all owned by the corporations and they're doing great. So they don't want to talk about the real problems. So they're going to talk about fake problems like cancel culture, like the Muppets or Dr. Seuss or Mr. Potato Head. I mean, can you imagine we're talking about Mr. Potato Head and the Congress just failed to pass a bill that would that would have effectively ended childhood poverty. No Republicans voted for it, uh, but not enough Democrats voted for it. So this is the world we live in. And I go to colleges and I, I will speak at colleges. And, you know, I've written so many stories over the years for The Onion, written so many books. I've never had anyone try to cancel me. And I've said a lot of offensive stuff. I've gotten angry letters. Like I've gotten people who are pissed off because I made fun of them or their group or whatever. Veterans have sent me letters at The Onion saying we're gonna boycott The Onion because you made a joke about veterans. Um, but let's not get confused here. If your comedy isn't pissing somebody off, you're not doing it right. Mm. Comedy has to have teeth. Otherwise, like, why are you doing it? You know, what? if you're just trying to be like all appropriate, I don't know about you, but I am not sitting around waiting for the next really juicy, appropriate joke. <laughs> not into it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the other thing is I've never raped anyone. I've never groped anyone. I've never called anyone a faggot. So um, nobody's coming out of the woodwork to cancel me. Um, the fact that like maybe somebody's a bully and they're doing some of these things and somebody wants to step up and say, hey, you're a bully. You shouldn't do that stuff. I say, I think that's great. I hate bullies. <laughs> like I, I totally want to uh, call them out. And if their boss wants to fire them from their job, fine. The bully can get another job. Um, I don't see it as cancel culture. And I don't see it as a problem. I don't feel like a legitimate entertainer has anything to worry about, you know, being quote unquote canceled. If you're a Nazi, um, you might get fired, you know, like that that woman from the Mandalorian. Uh, if you're supporting the Nazi party, yeah, you might get fired. Uh, too bad, you know. Um, don't be a fucking Nazi would be my advice to you. Title of episode right there. Don't be a Nazi. Be a fucking Nazi. I don't even, I, like, why the hell are we even having this conversation about whether Nazis are okay? For God's sake, how how far we've descended as a country. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know what? Actually, I just had that conversation today with people. Um, yeah, about being anyway, a Nazi? Nazis. Yeah, uh, it You're something a Nazi? got brought up about people dressing up as Nazis once upon a like few years ago, and it's like I cannot believe we're still discussing this. Um, uh, you can dress wrong. up as I, I don't mind you dress up as a Nazi if you're going to make fun of them. Uh, I don't think the person was making fun of them. Well, then that's a problem. <laughs> don't don't be a fucking Nazi. There you go. Don't be a Nazi. Period. Period. Ladies and gentlemen, the lesson of the day, don't be a fucking Nazi. No. Amen. <laughs> All right. So moving on now, uh, Annalise asks, um, how do you translate writing funny into connecting with an audience? I can write funny jokes all day and practice them, but the magic of connecting an audience seems to be something else entirely. Oh, it is. That goes beyond the writing. <laughs> totally. It's a totally different muscle and a totally different thing. So I started out doing performing. I performed in high school. I did like stand up in my high school talent show and I went and sold band candy and performed at all, everybody's door, doorstep to sell band candy. And I did radio plays and stuff. 
and I actually started doing voice work. That was the first comedy work I ever got when I was like 18, 19. Started doing voiceovers for commercials and cartoons and stuff. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a performer. Then I did a comic strip and I self-syndicated and I started making a living doing a comic strip. And that led to The Onion. And then I'm, so I'm doing more writing. And for like 20 years, I didn't perform at all. I just wrote. I did a little bit of voice work, like on The Onion radio news, you know, because you'd always need actualities in the news. Can't just be the news anchor. And there's ads, you know, so we needed announcers for ads that were different and stuff. But I didn't perform in person. I wasn't on stage for like 20, 25 years. And so it was, I don't know, like seven years ago, I want to say, six, seven years ago. I was like, okay, this has got to change. Like, I, I'm, I'm not diversified. Like, I'm, I'm too focused on the writing, and I'm very insular. I'm a total introvert, so I don't really go out. I don't go to parties. I don't talk to anybody if I don't have to. So I, um, I did a kind of, like, crash course, and I did a bunch of open mics, and I, I got booked at a bunch of clubs, wrote a ton of material. And over like three or four months, I did like this crash course of stand-up. And so at this point, I'm like a really successful comedy writer, best-selling author. I won the, I'm, I'm literally like the winner of the Thurber Prize for American Humor. Up there trying to do stand-up comedy and sucking at it. Totally sucking at it. And I had known this, like I knew on paper that it was different. And I also knew that Confidence is what sells jokes. It's not funny jokes. <laughs> like if you have no confidence and you get on stage, funniest joke in the world is going to bomb. But if you have all the confidence in the world, you can tell an unfunny joke and you're going to kill. So it's everything. And it's a totally different muscle. And the only way to build that muscle is to practice, is to get on stage. Now, obviously, it's harder to get on stage now. So you can get on a Zoom call. You can do it on, on a street corner. You know, bark it from your back porch, doesn't matter. You don't need somebody to give you permission to make a stage. You can make your own stage. You can do it from anywhere. Like, I love those crazy guys in New York who stand on the street corner and um, preach, you know, these Bible wackos. Like, why doesn't somebody do that with comedy? I want to see a stand-up comic on the corner just making people laugh as they walk by. It would be amazing. There's a guy, Dave Gray. I don't know if you guys know him. He... Uh, he was an up and coming stand-up comic in the nineties, super funny, amazing guy. I saw him perform and it was the most amazing act I'd ever seen. He just improvises for an hour and he does a lot of crowd work and he's just killing it, just killing it. And he got hired to, to be a radio DJ for a local rock station to be like the, you know, the comic color or whatever. Sorry, can you guys hear that chainsaw? Was that here? Oh, I didn't know if that was Bo's here. No, it's some jackass outside. So, um, Dave Gray um, made every place he was his stage. So I ran into him at the airport. We were both on the same flight and he was entertaining the people in the shuttle bus from the airport to the airplane. It's like a 10 minute ride. He did 10 minutes. He did a solid 10 minutes. He had that whole shuttle bus just cracking up and they were delighted. They're like, Hey, we got comedy. And he, he was just amazing. And, tragically died of an epileptic seizure in the late 90s but what a uh, what an inspiration that guy was so you need to practice the only way you're going to gain confidence as in front of a group of people is to practice it and it's going to be a, a tough 
you know, uh, crucible to go through because it's really rough. You suck, you bomb, but you got to do it. That's the only way to build it. You guys agree? I mean, what other way is there to build that? Yeah. Practice, practice, practice. By doing it, keep doing exercising it. that muscle. Not yep. to hit that cliche, but practice. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Uh, Bob asks, uh, Bob Jorgensen weighs in again. Um, how much content do the Onion writers generate before paring it down to what gets in the publications? Uh, an obscene amount. It's probably a thousand headlines written for every one headline printed. Wow. Yeah. There's a ton of writing. And the thing, yeah. most of us are just showing up for 10 minutes and writing one joke. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. So, but, you know, think about like a late night talk show. For that monologue, you know, uh, the host might have six jokes in the monologue. That person's got a team of like 10 writers sitting in cubicles all day long writing monologue jokes. So, you know, they're probably writing 3,000 jokes in a day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is an insane amount. Um, so going back to your book, how does a comedy avoid the the one? I think you called it a one itis. Yeah, I know a lot of comics they get in that head and they cannot yeah. stop performing that one piece. Yeah, if I could add to my earlier answer about what what mistakes do I see novices make? It's one itis. It's having that one joke in their act that they think is really good that they can't let go of, or that one project that they think is really funny that they're trying to push. You know, they're trying to write the TV pilot for it or they're trying to make it into a web series or whatever that is. And typically people like that only have the one idea. And so mm. have you written have you written 10 ideas to pick the best one? No, you just have the one idea. That's amateur town. You got to have some kind of traction before you get excited about pursuing an idea to keep, leave it in your act, for example. Um, Make sure that's the one thing people are always commenting. Oh my God, that part was really funny. Or, oh, that one thing you did, that was really amazing. And then do it, but then, you know, retire it after a while and come up with new stuff because you can't just rest on laurels, especially in stand-up for too long. You know, obviously you can have like your your road act or whatever, but um, it's you're not going to grow if you just keep using the same jokes over and over and over. Uh Ben Webb asks, um, what is the one piece of advice that was tough to hear, but helped you become a better writer? I know exactly what that was and what that moment was. I was at a, um, well, the context doesn't matter. I was trying to break into being a cartoonist and there was a meeting at the newspaper where this professional cartoonist was there, a couple of years older than me, had a syndicated comic strip and he said, he just threw off this like offhanded advice. He gave it to someone else. I was listening. I heard it. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Totally changed my life. His advice was sign up for something that has deadlines. Mm. Like, so he signed up for doing a comic strip, has a daily deadline. You've got to do a comic strip every day or you're going to get fired. There's going to be an empty hole in that part of the newspaper where your comic was supposed to go. And so I really took that to heart and I, signed up to do a comic strip with this college newspaper and ended up being a big hit and ended up, like I said, making a living from doing this comic strip and having that daily deadline every day, it forces you to produce and it forces you to practice. And we all know practice is what makes you great. So 
you don't even notice as the time goes by, you're just like trying to meet your deadline, trying to meet your deadline, trying to meet your deadline, and you're doing the best you can. And that's really healthy too. You can't just pour over it and try to make it perfect all the time. Your deadline's here. You got to put it out, move on to the next one. And then I did the same thing with The Onion. I signed up to do a weekly newspaper that was eight pages of broadsheet newsprint. That's a lot of space that we had to fill with, you know, stuff that we were hope, would hope would be entertaining. And we had advertisers who would pay money to be in there and we had to fill that or the advertisers are going to sue us for breaching the contract. And we had to put it out at, by a certain date. Incredibly valuable. So in, with the newspaper and the comic strip, I had all these deadlines. And for years, I thought I was just like, you know, a workaholic, like always trying to stay ahead of the, the deadline and meet my deadlines, pulling all nighters, you know, I was just obsessed. Like I said, I was just uh, an untutored ball of uh, raging ambition. But that was like a serious time of skill building that I couldn't have manufactured any better. You know, it's like I went through my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours and came out the other end being pretty good at what I did. And anybody can do that. I don't think it takes anybody special. When I started, I was not funny. I wasn't a good writer. I didn't know how to write jokes. Um, so I don't buy any of that crap that people say about you can't teach comedy. You can't learn comedy. You know, you either have it or you don't. It's total bullshit. Anybody can learn it. And I've seen it. Like people have taken my classes and I've given them these basic tools and they come out after eight weeks and they're getting hired to do comedy jobs, you know, professionally. So um, you got to do the work. You got to sit down and you got to force yourself to practice. And external deadlines are great for that. What are different ways people can monetize comedy? Yeah. So I do this whole course called Comedy Business School where I sort of go through all the various avenues and how to make money at them. Cause that was always a big thing with me. Like I, I had so many friends who would do comedy for fun. They would write radio plays or they would, you know, try to write funny, they would draw funny things or whatever. And they had no, it was a hobby or whatever. It was, they had a guy who loved the theater. You'd write these plays. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Why, why are you ever going to make a penny from that? <laughs> and I had to make this Venn diagram that basically in one circle, it was things you love to do. And the other circle was things you can make money at. And so, you know, the point where they meet in the middle is where you got to do work. Because mm. in the big circle of what you love, there's writing plays, there's making radio drama, you know, radio comedy show, comedy podcast, whatever you want to call it. You, there are ways to monetize almost everything, but you have to think of an idea that's monetizable. And then you have to go through the best practices to actually monetize it. So it totally depends on the medium. You know, with a podcast, you can get advertising. I don't have advertising on my podcast because I, I don't like advertising on podcasts, but you can do that. You know, that's certainly a way to make money at it. Or you can sell things from your podcast. Like my podcast, people sign up and they subscribe and they get to know me and they get to know my uh, How to Write Funny brand. And so maybe they'll buy my book at some point. Maybe they'll take a class at some point. So that's a way to I think that's a better way to monetize a podcast is to just have products. Like if you're a comedian, you should have a, a CD or a book and stuff. And so when you do your podcast, people get to know you. They like it. It's like, hey, I want to buy, buy that guy's book. You know, why not? So you can also write funny short pieces and you can sell those so many different places. As part of my comedy business school course, I produced this 
like um, Rolodex of all the publications that pay for humor articles. And there's a, there's a ton of them. Nice. So you do that, you know, you can get paid from the stage, you know, you can speak at uh, corporations, colleges, they pay really good money. If you have any kind of median stand-up skill and you have some kind of unique take, um, you know, don't slum it at the clubs. Like I did clubs for like three or four months and I was like, oh yeah, I, I could be making 50 times the money if I just do it at a corporate, <laughs> do it at a corporate event or, or do it at a college, you know? Yeah. So it's tragic. Those events are gone for now, but that was really sweet money for a while. Um, and then, you know, so you got to start your own publication. You got to write your own books and all the avenues are open now to self-publish and do that. It's so much easier now than when I started. My first self-published book was before the internet. So there was no Amazon. I had to find out how to get the UPC symbol and I had to drive these paste up boards to a literal printer. And I had to put lay out $5,000 for them to print the first run of the book. That was a lot of money to me. That was a lot of money. And um, thank goodness, like I was pretty sure the book would sell because my comic strip was really popular. It was a collection of my comic strip. And that book actually made the New York Times bestseller list for me self-publishing it and hand delivering it to bookstores. Boom. Um, so it's possible. Like anybody can do that stuff. It doesn't... Um, it really just takes nose to the grindstone. Um, but like I said, that I, I kind of go through all those details in that, in that course. There's a lot of like in the weeds stuff. Yeah. Cause that's a lot of questions we get in this pro group specifically is it's all comics who are pros or aspiring to be pros. And it's right. just thinking of all the different ways you can become a professional without the stage grind. That's part of yeah. it, but all the different ways you can also make money doing this. Right. Yeah, and you got to be diversified now because you never know, you know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket and we got this pandemic. And so you never know when what the next uh, calamity is going to be. It's, the next calamity might shut down uh, the Internet. So you better have something that's not Internet related. So, you, <laughs> you know, we're, we live in a third world country like we're, we're barely clinging to uh, Wi-Fi and cable at this point. So I would not be surprised at all. Did you see what happened in Texas with utilities? Like, how, uh, how, how do we know that's not going to happen nationwide with the internet? Like, I expect that to disappear at any moment. Like, I, I expect there to be roving bands of cannibals in front of my house at any moment. We're that close. We're that close to the end. That means we're going to have a comedy show via smoke signals, you know. Exactly. You better, better start working on your smoke signals. Exactly. Like, hey, wait, what did he say that? Oh, that was yeah. funny right there. Yeah. Um, start, start, making, start making your skull necklace now <laughs> so that when you have to join the band of roving cannibals, you're seen as some kind of uh, alpha. <laughs> How did you develop your vocabulary? I'm sorry, Bo, this is my last one. But no, like just hearing it. your word choice and like roving band of cannibals and you've you've had these like eloquent connections a few times in this conversation how how did you develop your vocabulary just i don't know. just got it how i talk i guess uh, i don't know i just didn't know because you mentioned like you weren't really funny and you learned how to be funny so i didn't know if part of that was focusing on like your vocabulary and your word choice yeah i mean i think i went through phases like i think in my teens i focused a lot on vocabulary like learning new words and trying to write a lot and explore, you know, what, what words were funniest. Because I, I remember, like, I flunked out of high school, but I took a lot of English because I knew that communication was really important. And I was really into, like, being able to write really well. And so when I went to 
I was able to test into a college, even though I didn't have a high school degree, so a uh, high school diploma. So I went to a few different colleges. And then I was starting to practice, like trying to be funny in person. And in that environment, it's, it's all about like the words you use, you know, like sounding like confident and hip and, and whatever. And I think my personality kind of grew out of that. And so that was first. And then I think for, for most of my 20s, the skill I worked on developing was like interpersonal skills. I literally got that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I would go to lunch meetings and I would like come back and take notes on how I did, you know, like, oh, I really screwed up that interaction. I was such a nerd. Oh my God, why did I say that? I'm like, I, I think of myself as like this very weird borderline, um, you know, autistic person who just doesn't interact well with others. It can be very off-putting. And so I really worked hard on that because I knew that was an important skill to have. Anytime I feel like I'm lacking in a skill, I really put in the effort to try to get better at it and try to learn the skill. I'm a big believer in self-improvement and the idea that we're not stuck. You know, we can learn to be better at things. Uh, Sullivan asks, um, which comedy writer's advice do you absolutely trust? I mean, quite a few. I don't have any reason not to trust uh, anyone's advice. If there's something that they've done that's worked for them, you know, I'm, I'm up for trying it. Like I interviewed Patton Oswald for my most recent How to Write Funny episode that just came out a week or two ago. And he was full of great advice. And I was listening and just saying, oh yeah, that, okay, that's cool. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta do that. Um, so yeah, he's smart. Like any like comedian who's been doing it for a long time, um, Bob Einstein, I interviewed him on my podcast and he had great advice. It was really good for me to hear. Like my podcast is about comedy. So I talked to comedy writers, performers, producers, et cetera, just like you guys. And it's not really trying to be funny. It's just like talking about comedy. Mm -hmm. And Bob Einstein did not understand that. He said, <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing? You gotta have jokes. You gotta have jokes. Because his whole thing, and he comes from that old school. And I think people like John Cleese are in that camp. And I'm sure a lot of these old timers, they're like, you never show the audience what's behind the curtain. Like there are these people who they don't believe in DVD commentary tracks. You know, they just present the entertainment and that's it. That's all you get. You get the entertainment. You don't get the real me. You don't get the behind the scenes, how it works or anything like that. So Bob Einstein, like, you know, he did a great interview and he talked, did you guys know who I'm talking about? Super Dave Osborne. Uh, that's Bob Ooh. Einstein. Bob Einstein. Yeah. He was okay, also good. on Curb. Great on Curb Enthusiasm. Yeah. So, um, he ended the interview by telling a joke because he was like, you got to have a joke. <laughs> so he like tells a joke. And that's like, you know, that's really, um, that's just really good advice. You know, you, you can, you can deconstruct and all that for a long time, but you also got to remember that you're an entertainer and you got to entertain. So I, I took that to heart quite a bit because I tend to separate the two really distinctly. This is the stuff I'm doing for entertainment. This is the stuff I'm doing to like help people get better at comedy. And I, I've always been distracted by jokes when people are trying to teach comedy. I don't want jokes when I'm trying to learn comedy. I want somebody to tell it to me straight, tell me how to do it, give me this, the steps. Don't try to make it all funny. That, that bothers me. So going back to the book, um, 
in the first book, and for those of, if nobody's ever read it, then you need to go out and buy uh, How to Write Funny. But read the first one before you read the second one, otherwise you'll be lost. Like, you totally. will, yeah. Actually, I had to read, <laughs> I had to like go back and read How to Be Funny twice before I went to the first wow. one, to the wow. second one. But you do discuss um, when testing the material to kind of go through the filters, the comedy filters. You should have at least two of them. Are there, do you feel there are any of the filters that like don't play well together and some that like you have to have, like you should have these two, they, they, they're, they're fantastic together? No, I think some like irony and character are two that go great together and most good jokes have them, but you don't need them. Like there, there are other jokes that work well. The, the funny filters are, I, I think of them as more like toys than tools and so use your imagination. Like if you've got two mm-hmm. toys that you think would be fun to play with together, that's up to you. <laughs> you know, you can make it work. <laughs> I've never encountered a clash where they like don't work well together. And there are some jokes that use every one of the 11 funny filters. And just so we're clear, those, those are by my determination, the, the only 11 ways that things can be made funny. If you want something to be professionally funny, it has to be one of those 11 things and with that combination of 11 things you can tell an infinite variety of jokes in any medium and you'll have a really good success especially if you have more than one so like Monty Python's sketch um, the most dangerous joke you guys know that one where they translate this or the guy wrote a joke and he died laughing after he wrote it and then they translate it into German and they use it during the war. They run through the battlefield telling the joke and all the soldiers are done. So that is a brilliant, funny, awesome sketch. And it uses all 11 of the funny filters, which is why it's such a classic in my mind, like just academically speaking, it's like, it's just masterful comedy. And so I, I always try to like get as many of them in there as possible because they're only gonna enhance the, the humor. Because everybody in the audience kind of has a different sense of humor. Like they're going to favor one funny filter over the other. So there's no right or wrong. Somebody might not enjoy madcap humor, for example. They don't like wacky physical humor. Somebody else only likes wordplay. So if you mix those two, you get both those people liking your joke. Um, And if you can get all 11 of the funny filters in there, you're going to get, you're not going to leave anybody out. That is awesome. Uh, Carl asks, um, what are topics that you often see overused? I mean, relationship and dating is probably the one, you know, it's, it's an endlessly interesting topic to people, but I feel like the way it's used is, is too similar. Like I'd love to see a a new take on that. And obviously there are all the old cliches we've seen of like, um, white versus black, um, airplanes, you know, all the stuff. And then, you know, that same thing I was saying before, like that intro in a stand-up bit where you introduce yourself to the audience um, by saying, I know what you're thinking, or, you know, that I'm tired of that. Is that still a thing? People still doing that? Yeah. Are they? Yeah. I yeah. Do. Stop. Stop. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just don't, don't be like other comics, you know, just do something mm. really different. Mm. Like, see why Steve Martin and Andy Kaufman, like, were, were so groundbreaking and so huge uh, because they just did it differently. They just came out and did something totally different. 
People love that. They're dying for that. Dying for it. And, you know, that's not to say there aren't people who do it traditionally and do it really well. Like John Delaney is a great example of a guy who does traditional stand-up comedies, not really doing anything radically different, but he does it really, really well. And that's great. But you have to do it really, really well. Here's a little hack for you, a little trick. If you do something crazy original, you don't even have to do it that well. You just, <laughs> just do it differently and people are going to take notice. They're going to be like, hey, that's different, you know? Mm. And that gives you time to grow and get really good at it, at what you do. Joel, do you have any last questions? Uh, yeah, in, the, in that creative pursuit, how, how do you write when you don't feel like it? That's a really good question. I get that all the time. My prescription for that is to write anyway. You know, um, what are you, some kind of privileged first world brat? I don't feel like doing the work. Okay, well then don't do the work. Don't succeed. Yep. It's up to you. But if you want to succeed, you got to sit down, you got to do the work. And here's the thing. What you think is that if you sit down and write jokes when you don't feel like it, they're not going to be funny. It's not how it works. You just think they're not funny. They just feel unfunny to you because you don't feel funny. They're the same. Because like when I was doing The Onion every week during those dark years of my 20s, 30s, and 40s, <laughs> where I don't remember anything else, there were times when I didn't feel like writing anything, but I had a deadline. I had to do it. So I sat down and did it. I look back now. I look at the material I wrote when I was really on fire and in the zone feeling great. I compare that to the material I wrote when I wasn't feeling funny. At all. I can't tell the difference. You know, it's all comes down to, you know, do you have the skill? Are you doing the best you can? And you'd be surprised. Sometimes the jokes you write when you don't feel like it are often the best jokes because maybe you're even getting at more of an honest core of yourself in, in those moments. Wow. Boom. Now we've learned a lot today, you know, uh, right. When you don't feel like it, yeah. get yourself some head beads. Um, <laughs> skulls. Yeah. Yeah. Skulls. skulls. Don't yeah. be a Nazi. And, yeah. um, <laughs> and write every, anything and everything. Yeah. Do, the, be in every medium, be in every, on every platform. <clears throat> it's mean, exhausting, but that's what you got to do. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things I, I did take from uh, one of the two books is the fact that, you know, just don't stick with stand-up. Write something else. Write yeah. this, write that, and then organize it. And so with the last question, what? how does your organizing of your material look like? Well, it's all in my computer, and it's in different folders. You know, I have a different folder for book stuff and um, performance stuff and movie ideas. Um new project ideas, you know, that are, are kind of uncategorizable. And so I try to sit down and write 10 ideas every day. And I don't put any restrictions on that. It can be a joke, it can be an idea for a project. It can be anything. I like to have no restrictions. And then every couple of weeks, I'll look through all those lists of 10 that I did. And that's, you know, after two weeks, what is that? 140 ideas. That's pretty good. You know, so you're going to find something in there that's pretty okay. That's where I get all my ideas for the novel I might write or um, a new joke, you know, that I might do in a performance, a video, you know, any, whatever I might have. So I go through those lists of 10 and I take the ideas that I think have merit and I put them in the, the various folder of the, whatever the medium is, you know, so when I, when I, 
feel like carving out a time to write a book, I'll go in the book folder and say, okay, what kind of ideas do I have to write a book? And I'll see all these ideas and I'll have forgotten most of them, which is incredibly valuable. You go through those and you look at, oh, that's, that's a really good idea. Who wrote that? That's pretty cool. I love that feeling. It's just categorized based on topic or medium, basically. Medium. Yeah. That's how I categorize them. Yeah. Nice. That is is just absolutely awesome. Well, before we go, um, do you have any um, parting advice for, we have a lot of new comics that have just started since the pandemic started. Wow. And I mean, maybe just a year longer than that. I mean, it's a varied degree. So do you have any uh, last advice for new comics? I mean, yeah, there's a lot. And I guess my advice would be go to howtowritefunny.com because I've got a bunch of free resources there, free eBooks that are filled with advice, especially for uh, people starting out. There's a joke writing cheat sheet on there. It's all free stuff. And my podcast episodes are all there. They're all free. Great advice from a lot of really top level comedy people. Um, You can't go wrong. Um, trying to be, trying to be useful, trying to be helpful, trying to give a little back. So mm. that's what that's what that is. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. There's a lot of people right now saying how great this has been. Good. Um, they've taken a lot from it. I mean, is like the the pouring of, of of thanks and compliments is it's amazing right now. This is one of the best. I'm glad to hear. There it is, Hot breath the finale of our comedy author series. We have plenty others for you to go back and listen to, but remember, if you found this episode helpful, reach out to Scott, let him know that his time with Hot Breath was well spent, and reach out to a fellow comedian or aspiring comedian. Let them know about this episode. Let them know about Hot Breath, as we are all in this together, my friends, on the mission of becoming the next generation of great self-made comics. So we're here to help at Hot Breath, whether that's with our free comedy writing Facebook group or our classes and workshops. All of that is linked into the description of this episode. And until next Monday, right here on Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.